This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the third in our month of Best Picture winners with Amadeus from 1984, directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, and starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, and Elizabeth Barrage. This movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and won eight, including Best Picture. So, Dad, this was your choice for the 1980s. It's actually our first 1980s Best Picture winner so far. I'm sure we're going to get to all of them at some point, including your favorite, Out of Africa. But (laughs) what made you choose this particular movie? Well, I saw it in the theater when it was released and really liked it. And I kept talking about it. And then after your mother and I got married, I kept talking about it. So I found it and I watched it with her by, I'm sure at that point, VHS. And I hadn't seen it in, oh, I don't know, several, several years. So I uh, thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity to see a movie that I thought was really well done, and the uh, performances were fantastic, so why not? And is this before or after you checked out for the entirety of the 80s? Uh, it was kind of during. It was in, I was in college, so I, I would occasionally get to the, the movies while I was in college. I had a few friends uh, that I used to go to movies with. A lot of times, though, well, and I found this out, Tom Hulse, uh when I was doing my research, uh, I am a uh, Beloit College graduate from Beloit, Wisconsin. Tom Hulse graduated about uh, 10 or 11 years from uh, before me from Beloit College, which I did not know. But uh, we used to have movies regularly on campus on Friday nights in one of the lecture halls. And so I saw a lot of films, especially older films, that way. But... Um, but I would get there occasionally, so this was kind of more before I checked out. By the time I got to be a sophomore, or excuse me, a, a junior, a senior, and into law school, I was much more tied up, say to, so to speak, uh, and didn't get out and do a whole lot, have a time out as I as much as I used to. So we've discussed on the on the show before. Uh, we've done Raiders of the Lost Ark twice. In fact, we did all three Indiana Jones movies last year for a month. We have done E.T., we've done Die Hard, we've covered Ferris Bueller, we've covered a lot of the big movies of the 1980s. We even did Top Gun recently before the sequel was released. But we haven't yet gotten to one that had won Best Picture. Now, there seems to be a bit of separation between the awards-worthy films and the ones that were the big popcorn ones of the time, in a way that there wasn't exactly in maybe, say, the 70s, where they seemed to be very closely tied. But as an adolescent going through the 80s at that time, do you think there's a particular theme or look to the 80s movies and maybe 
expand upon what you would perceive as the the difference between those that kind of were the awards worthy ones and the ones that weren't? I think to some extent the eighties was about the time where there became a real clear dichotomy between people who were more intellectual and people who were not. And uh, movies, and especially critics, were so artsy and so almost elitist. I mean, Gene Siskel was just horrible about that. I mean, he just deadpanned any film that would be generally liked by the common masses. It was never good enough. It was never artistic enough. And so I think to a large extent, Hollywood kind of got taken over a bit by that dichotomy where there were some films that were very well done that just would never, ever be considered for best picture, even though they were nominated. I think the first time that I really thought uh, the Academy started to kind of downplay. I thought Tootsie was actually a better film than Gandhi because the way it was done, the pacing, but a comedy winning over a film about a, a great historic political dissident, that was never going to happen. And I think that was the trend that kind of continued throughout the 80s, where there was the films that you should like and those that you did like. And, I mean, to, to paraphrase, I think movies of the 80s kind of was the same thing that Mark Twain said about classic books, which is a classic is something that everybody wants on their shelf, but no one wants to read. Well, I think taking your example of 1982 with Gandhi, Gandhi ends up winning, but it was over a different film that was the or perceived favorite going into awards night, and that was E.T., a film that you didn't even see. Now, to be fair, that it might be one of the highest inflation-adjusted grossing movies of all time. And I think it was supposed to be the runaway favorite of the night. But I guess if I could say that there's a common theme among Best Picture winners, it's how many times Steven Spielberg had a commercially successful, pretty good, critically acclaimed movie and would get somehow beaten out for the Oscar repeatedly throughout the 80s. There's a lot of uh, jealousy in Hollywood. You shouldn't be that successful if you're really that good. No, I think to a large extent, those that are unheralded end up getting a thumbs up among a certain class of those that believe in the art over the commercialism, that somehow commercial or popular is not artsy. I don't understand that particular vein of thought because I, I don't know when fun turned into something that was unartistic, but I think that's where the divergence really happened as far as I can tell. Movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark or E.T. or even his work on The Color Purple, which should be something that just about every critic would have given to Steven Spielberg, but somehow out of Africa won. <laughs> I, I just don't quite understand. Had they not watched the films? I don't know. A conversation for a different time. I suppose we should actually start talking about Amadeus itself. What is your familiarity level with 
Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's music. This movie came out about the same time I started developing an interest in classical music. And, you know, I came from a very humble background, and uh, my parents were, you know, listened to country and western, and that was when it was still country and western. And we're not big uh, music aficionados, and uh, as a result, you know, I kind of at some point sat down and said, all right, I'm going to have a college degree. I'm going to go to law school. What are the things that I should know being a better educated person and learn to appreciate? So classical music being one of those. I remember going and finding articles on etiquette at the dinner table. So I learned how to use all of the silverware. Checked it out from the interlibrary loan so that I had some idea which is the proper fork to use. And so I started studying classical music and Mozart. I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed Bach and then started going because I was a, what would have been a minor in Russian history. So I was very familiar with the Russian composers because that was part of our Russian history was to study the great 19th century composers such as Tchaikovsky and, and uh, Mazorsky and such. So that's how I got familiar with Mozart. And I would listen to Mozart while he was studied. I don't have a ton of experience with classical music. Like just about everybody that went through college at some point, even in your first couple of years, you probably took a music appreciation class. I did in my first year at lacrosse. And I enjoyed it for the most part. I know a few things like the Hungarian Rhapsody and, you know, certain symphonies of Beethoven, but like, I can't name any of the names of particular pieces of music from Mozart specifically. I think most people would say Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but that's not actually <laughs> his tune. It's it's a slight variation on that. He didn't write that. It was part of a larger piece of music that he did that somebody adapted because it was a familiar tune. Regardless, I found myself having to kind of search a little bit to what was familiar during the course of this movie. It's probably been about 10 years since I watched it the first time with you and mom. And occasionally a tune would pop up that I'd be, oh yeah, that's familiar to me. It's kind of like how in the first scene or so, the priest, he's being played tunes and he only recognizes one that's familiar and it's Mozart. That's about what I was through the course of this movie. And about half the time did I actually understand or recognize pieces that uh, were being played. The ones that I didn't, I kind of glazed over, I'll be honest. I, I really enjoyed listening to the music again. I just wonder if the general audience, since we tend to pride ourselves on being able to suggest certain movies to people, if they're even going to recognize the half that I did and even care about the other half it's part of culture and part of, of life. And, you know, and quite frankly, I, I still um, will put classical music station on from Pandora on my uh, Alexis on Sundays while I'm reading the Sunday paper. Your sister refers to me as my pretentious moment. Is an Alexis like the offshoot Walmart brand? Oh, the Alexa, excuse me. All right, so then what is this movie about? Bitterness, jealousy, and waste. 
I think this really plays out as a rivalry film because I think each of the two primary parties feel the rivalry, clearly. You get that in that final scene, and we're going to definitely talk about that a lot more because I thought that was extraordinary. But it plays out somewhat like a Shakespearean drama with a Greek tragedy ending. And given the amount of TV shows currently that we have that are very similarly written to this, and frankly, a lot of them are written by playwrights, it seemed a bit familiar in its structure to me in that form. Obviously, you have Salieri and you have Mozart, but they're feeling the, as you mentioned, bitterness and jealousy of the entire course of their lives. One, that he could never live up to his father's love, and the other one never feels like he could be good enough for God's love. What I found interesting about this is is you could substitute Mozart and insert like half a dozen drummers from British bands. Instead of Mozart, you could have Keith Moon. You could have John Bonham because they destroyed themselves. And that's ultimately Mozart drank himself to death in this film. Salieri just kind of pushed it over and helped the uh, downward spiral. But, I mean, this is 19th century rock star. Well, I think you could also make the comparison or the connection to the parable of Icarus. He flew too close to the sun. Or that his talent was so great that it was difficult for most to realize or appreciate because it was so far beyond what everyone else knew or understood, they couldn't figure out how good it really was. Is it a byproduct of being ahead of his time, much in the same way a lot of critics after the fact have celebrated Kubrick? I think that's exactly it. The problem is is that many artists are successful because they're building upon the work of predecessors. Every once in a while, there's a generational artist whether in film, in painting, in photography, in music, that's just so far removed from what is common. Most people can't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they can't appreciate it. And it's not until after the person is literally dead that they kind of go, hey, you know... This was really good. And then start other artists start picking up on it and start utilizing it. And then it becomes more popular. So their popularity is based posthumously. I suppose you can see that with a lot of different artists, a lot of them dying penniless and destitute, and then their art taking off after their deaths. I, I think that is a common cursor throughout time. But let's get some more background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In the winter of 1823, Antonio Salieri, F. Murray Abraham, is in a psychiatric hospital following a suicide attempt. A priest is summoned to hear Salieri's confession concerning his statement that he killed the composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Tom Hulse. In his confession... Salieri reveals his contempt for Mozart's obscenity, immaturity, and drunkenness. He cannot understand how God has chosen Mozart 
as his instrument to bring heavenly music to the world. As Mozart's drunkenness and poor behavior destroys health, marriage, and reputation, leaving him sick and broke, Salieri uses the situation to seek revenge on God and on Mozart and prove he is more than mediocre. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Milos Forman as director, Peter Schaefer as writer, F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri, Tom Hulse as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Elizabeth Barrage as Constance Mozart, Roy Dotris as Leopold Mozart, Simon Callow as Emmanuel Schikanader, Christine Ebersole as Caterina Cavalieri, Jeffrey Jones as Emperor Joseph II, Charles Kay as Count Orsini Rosenberg, Kenneth McMillan as Michael Schlumberg, only available in the director's cut, which is the only one available at this time, Kenny Baker as Parody Commendatore, Lisbeth Bartlett as Papa Jaina. Recognition for this movie? Amadeus is based on the stage play of the same name by Peter Schaefer from 1979. It was wide released on September 19, 1984. Upon release, it received widespread acclaim and was a box office hit grossing over $90 million. Amadeus currently holds an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 88% on Metacritic. Considered by many to be one of the greatest films of all time, Amadeus was nominated for 53 awards and received 40, including four BAFTAs, four Golden Globe Awards, and a Directors Guild of America Award. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, including Best Actor for Tom Hulse, Cinematography and Film Editing, and won eight Oscars, including Best Picture, Director for Milos Forman, Actor for F. Murray Abraham, Screenplay for Schaefer, Art Direction, Costume Design, Makeup, and Sound. In 1998, the American Film Institute ranked it 53rd on its 100 Years 100 Movies list. As of 2022, it is the most recent film to have more than one nomination in the Academy Award for Best Actor category. In 2019, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? Amadeus is one of only four productions to win both a Tony Award for Best Play for 1981 and the Best Picture Oscar in 1984. The other three are... Do you want to guess? West Side Story. No. Oh, A Few Good Men? No. A Few Good Men didn't win Best Picture. That was Unforgiven. Hmm. The first two, well, all three of them are from the 60s, and they're all back to back to back. The first two won for Best Musical. My Fair Lady. That's the first one. Sound of Music. That's number two. Oliver. No. That was 1967. The film sandwiched in between that when just about every stage adaptation that went on to be a big hit movie won Best Picture, except for apparently The Music Man, A Man for All Seasons. Really? Yes, in 1966. Great movie that I'm going to be very happy to uh, discuss eventually on this program. Did you know? Milos Forman insisted that his lead actors retain their American accents so that they could concentrate on their characters and performance instead. Did you know? Mark Hamill, who replaced Tim Curry as Mozart towards the end of the run on the stage play on Broadway, 
recalled in an interview that he read with many actresses auditioning for Mozart's wife, Constance, and after the reads, Foreman decided not to cast him because of his association with the character of Luke Skywalker, believing that the audience would not believe him as the composer. Did you know? Tom Hulse reportedly used John McEnroe's mood swings as a source of inspiration for his portrayal on Mozart's unpredictable genius. <laughs> yeah. Did you know? The film ironically helped spark a revival of Salieri's music, which had previously languished in obscurity. Did you know? When shooting the scene in which Salieri is writing down the death mass under Mozart's dictation, Tom Hulse was deliberately skipping lines to confuse F. Murray Abraham in order to achieve the impression that Salieri wasn't able to fully understand the music being dictated. <laughs> Did you know? Several professors of music stated, after studying all of the musical keys struck on pianos throughout the film, that not one key is struck incorrectly when compared to what is heard at the exact same moment. In other words, what you see is exactly what you hear. Wow. Did you know? The performance of Don Giovanni in the movie was filmed on the same stage where the opera first appeared. Did you know? That really is Tom Hulse playing the piano on his back in one scene. Did you know? Tom Hulse only knew how to play guitar before shooting. Milos Forman said they could cheat it, but it would be good if he learned how to play the piano. Hulse then spent six hours a day for six months learning how to play the piano in every Mozart symphony that was in the film. Did you know? The movie was shot without the use of light bulbs or other modern lighting devices. Did you know? Tom Hulse said he based Mozart's distinctive obnoxious laugh on a very famous director he worked with who laughed in an identical manner. But as of 2016, he has still refused to name that director. It's got to be John Landis. We don't know. He won't say. Got to be John Landis. He directed uh, Animal House, which Tom Hulse was in. I think he'd been in other films. Well, I think it's John Land. Well, there you go. Something to theorize on for now until the end of time. Anyway, that looks like as good a spot as any to take our first break. We will be right back. Before we get back to the show, next week we will be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with our final selection from the 1950s with one of the most renowned acting performances of all time with On the Waterfront from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg, and starring Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint, Carl Malden, Rod Steiger, and Lee J. Cobb. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, let's go to best performance. What did you have down? The Academy got this one right. F. Murray Abraham it was just phenomenal. I mean, the fact that he was so convincing as the aged composer and then so sinister while he's plotting against Mozart. He had the most to do. He had the widest range to portray. He did it phenomenally. I think it helped that Murray basically had been a stage actor and was used to performing more stage action, even though this was a movie and it came across that way. He just was phenomenal. It's one of the better performances I think I've seen of an actor. I, I would probably put it in, oh, at least my top 20, if not my top 10. 
I don't know if I'd quite go that far. I think the script really worked for him because while I was going through quotes for selecting for later on in the show, he really has all the best dialogue of the movie. Think of the wide range of emotions, though, that he has to cover and does so aptly. Sinister, evil, playful, emotional, depressed, angry, bitter, jealous, envious, and I know some of those are very similar, but I think they're little bit of variations upon all of those. Appreciative, astounded. I mean, there are a wide range of things that he had to do because not only can he be the only one, and I think he directly says at some point during the course of the film, that he might be the only person on earth that can understand the genius of Mozart and appreciate him for the composer that he was at the time, which I think is factually inaccurate, like a lot of things from this film. It's not a direct biopic, but that he has this, and yet he has such contempt for him and does it in a way that's playful and likable, yet you can sympathize with his disgust. So is that who you had picked also? I think it's the obvious answer. I didn't really feel there was another great way to go. I think you could talk about the cinematography to be able to do that without modern lighting techniques and figure out ways of staging all of that, I think is incredible. You could talk about the direction and knowing how to get this movie even made to begin with, because we'll just, I guess, cover this here. I was trying to figure out what the difference was between the theatrical release and the director's cut. That seems to be the only version that's now survived. Now, apparently, in order to get the film funded, and to be able to be seen by a wider audience because most studios were not willing to produce this film. He cut 20 minutes out of the director's cut that he has now in order to basically make it more palatable. And that version was PG. Whereas the director's cut is R-rated for language and for nudity and some other things that are included within that. And it doesn't really add a ton more, but where he basically said... I cut everything out that didn't have to do with the main plot. But when we went back and it's for the remastering and the re-release of the DVD, he added it back in. And that's the version that everybody now gets to see. I think that he had quite a task to try and get this movie produced and made when it talks about set design, production, costume design, and the fact that they were rewarded. I mean, we see films like last year with Dune, the grand scale of something like that get rewarded with a lot of technical or below the line awards and then not win the big ones. This is still of the era where a lot of the technical awards would also go to the best picture winner yet. Whereas there was, there seems to be some current separation. So you could have gone in that route. I didn't. I think Murray stands above just about everybody else. And that's why I felt I was almost obligated to go with him because he is as, good in this movie as you possibly probably can be. I think you could have gone a lot of different ways for best secondary, but I went with Peter Schaefer. I think it's understated how well written the film is because he's adapting it not only from a play that won a best Tony, but also that you can pick up and make this into a working movie screenplay. And I think that's also incredibly difficult, but understanding and not losing the tone or the pacing of the movie at any one point in time. Everything is driving towards a similar narrative. 
And so I wanted to give him some credit as my best secondary. Well, I went with Tom Holtz, and for simple reason that he also really hit the ball uh, out of the park for the most part. I mean, he had wide range of emotion. He was able to go from being frolicking to serious to petulant to expressing some levels of jealousy, of uh, envy, uh, how other people who he perceives with lesser talent can be above or rise above him as far as popularity. I, I just thought Tom Olds did a really great job. After having seen him in Animal House, I didn't know whether he was really uh, that good of an actor or if it was just, I don't know. And then when I saw him in this, I thought, really, he was really good. And then every time I've watched it since, I have even more appreciation for him as an actor. So I found the most charismatic a very difficult category, but what did you have down? (laughs) I have... uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, just the sheer presence of his music and of him as a character. I mean, as some of our listeners know, we've had multiple exchange students. We've exchanged daughters from Hungary. And one day while we were visiting them, they asked me, Dad, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to see Vienna. So we hopped in a car. It's about an hour and a half from Budapest to get to to Vienna, and I walked around Vienna, and I walked around the Opera House, and it is so inspiring. It is so beautiful, and to see the Opera House, to hear the music, to hear the symphony playing it, to know the scenery, and to having actually experienced it, it just was uplifting, and I couldn't think of any other way than that to say that is being charismatic. I personally would have gone with F. Murray Abraham here. I think he was the most charismatic because you have to really invest in his character in order for the movie to work and invest in his situation, basically empathize with what he feels is a slight by God. But I didn't want to double up too much, so I went actually with Elizabeth Barrage. I thought she was incredibly charming. She's very good looking in this movie. And I just want to give her credit for the difficulty of the job of not making the wife seem like an absolute witch. I mean, she's trying to save Mozart from himself because she actually loves him and recognizes all the bad people around him that are causing his own demise, but does it in a way that seems loving and caring as opposed to, I don't know, nagging. And really the fact that she does the nude scene in the director's cut and that was not in the original really does explain her hatred towards uh, Salieri that didn't in the original. I had a hard time understanding exactly why she hated him so much. But then when you see the director's cut, oh yeah, because not only is he does she understand he's working against her husband, he's embarrassed her and made her seem petty and and worthless. So then let's go to best scene. For a nearly three-hour movie, I had some real difficulty trying to figure out a lot of scenes to nominate. So you may have to help supplement if I missed some spots. 
I think that particularly, and this will come up later in the scoring, and I mentioned it to you off air over the weekend, I think the first hour works really well when you're digging into the contempt that Salieri has for Mozart and that you really start to understand the evolution of how that came about and then their mutual hatred for each other. But as it kind of gets into the second part where it's discussing Mozart's accomplishments in the face of Salieri's sabotage, more or less, I had some real difficulties. And it's difficult to kind of parse out different scenes between all of those things without some of them being somewhat expository. I thought the third hour, though, worked really well and to me has what I feel is the best scene, but we'll get to that here in a second. So my nominees are Mozart plays Salieri's new tune. So that's at the beginning when they they first meet each other. He doesn't make copies, which is the scene where he realizes that Mozart's writing all of these freehand as originals and makes no mistakes. The Marriage of Figaro, which is a really mashed up scene because it's got several different pieces to that, everywhere from trying to convince the emperor to allow him to show the opera to finally debuting the opera and the too many notes comment. The Masquerade Party, which we've kind of already alluded to when we talked about Tom Hulse playing the piano backwards, but it's the famous one of him play Salieri and then making fun of him. Then the first time we see Salieri is Don Giovanni, I think is an important scene that I, I felt needed to be nominated because of the, I guess, thrill nature of that scene going when he really starts to generate and explain his plan. Then Mozart and Salieri write together. So the night that, or I guess the night before Mozart dies, where he's dictating the music to Salieri and they're working together and it really seems that they're finally getting along and it's creating this almost genius level hum. And then finally, Mozart buried in a mass grave. I have a feeling you probably have a few to nominate that are outside of those. Um, well, the scene I had, which was the family scene between Mozart, his father, and his wife, I think that kind of conveys the struggles Mozart has of living his life versus being in the shadow of his father's control, desire, uh, directives. But I agree, there there are a lot of scenes that just blend from one scene into the other, and it's hard to differentiate. So I think other than that, I don't really have any that I would say are unique. So I think that out of the ones that I nominated, there are two really exceptional scenes, and the rest are just kind of important ones. I would say that the first time that they meet together and Mozart's really impressive and he's basically showing off that he can not only take Salieri's tune, but improve upon it in the moment without the sight of music himself. I think that's an exceptional scene. Everything from where he's playing around with Constance in the other room with the cakes and Salieri figures out who he is to eventually that mastery that he provides to basically say, this is who I am and really put his stamp down. I think that's an impressive scene. But the one to me that was exceptional and that really got me to sit up and make sure my phone was down 
was the scene at the end right before he dies, the night they have together. Just the back and forth where he's describing Requiem and dictating it to Salieri and they're being almost loving towards each other, I think is just a great scene between two exceptional actors in that moment. I agree. And I think it's not just the give and take. It's the genius. <laughs> I mean, that Mozart is just composing this. He has it in his head and he's trying to convey it. And he's trying to get Salieri to understand what he's saying. And he's having difficulty grasping it and going back and forth. The creative process was so awesome. <laughs> I can't say, I can't think of anything else to say about it. It just got me going because I'm like, wow. I just love when that kind of unique creativity occurs. I couldn't have said it better. I, I just was mesmerized by the give and take of the scene and the hurried nature of Salieri, but also that Tom Hulse never seemed so composed and not in a way that I mean it as a pun here, but he seemed somehow to understand in the moment that he was the greatest composer and be able to just spit things out while he's in this almost passed out drunken stupor. It is the best scene for me. It was my favorite scene and it is the most indelible thing to me. It hit all three. I agree. I think if you were to tell anybody to watch anything about this film, just to watch that part of the film was just so incredible. I have always found it inspiring to watch people who are creative or who have collaboration and can produce by inspiration, whether it be music, art, writing. It's one of the reasons why I'm always fascinated by show of shows in the writing room. I mean, these kinds of things just are so awesome to me that I kind of just nerd out about them. Well, I think this is a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Just a reminder that you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. All right, Dad, before we move on, do we have anyone to remember this week? Well, we have a very eclectic group, unfortunately. All actors. L.Q. Jones, he was 94, um, had done The Wild Bunch and Hang 'em High, which was a uh, Clint Eastwood film. Directed A Boy and His Dog. Had a very long and successful career in film. And in TV. Yes, I guess that's indeed the case in TV. Gregory uh, Eitzen, uh, American actor, he was did the TV show uh, 24, The Mentalist, and was in the movie Lincoln. Um, he's another one of these actors. If you uh, happen to see his photo, you go, oh, that guy. Very well. He was a very good character actor who had a long uh, and successful career. Tony Sirico was a American actor. Uh, interestingly, I read that uh, he actually was a convicted felon working with the uh, actual mafia. Uh, after he got out of prison, he went into acting and played a lot of different parts 
as tough guys. Uh, was in The Sopranos, was in the film Goodfellas, and uh, Wonder Wheel. He was 79. Larry Storch, from my generation, <laughs> he was in uh, a, a very uh, a show that was more popular in syndication than when it was on actual television called F Troop, which was about uh, a group of um, cavalrymen who, in the Wild West who were more uh, operators than actual soldiers. It was kind. Of, it was a comedy. He also voiced uh, Tennessee to, or in uh, the uh, cartoon Tennessee Tuxedo with Don Adams, and uh, was in the film The Great Race. And then, uh, obviously, the most memorable for this past week, James Caan, uh, American actor. Sonny and the uh, or the Godfather was in Thief. Was in Misery. First time I saw him was in a film that really impacted me as a child, uh, Brian's Song, which was originally a TV movie, but then was so popular it was released in theaters, playing Brian Piccolo, the Chicago Bears running back who ended up dying of cancer. And um, he had a long and successful career. Uh, I think the last film he was in, which was just fabulous, was Elf. He was or playing opposite uh, Will Ferrell was just hilarious. So I can tell that you don't have a large relationship to most of the people on this list. With me, that's a little bit different. So thankfully, you have one with the one that I don't really in Larry Storch. And uh, he was 99, so even that should just be celebrated by itself. But when you want to talk about L.Q. Jones... He was a common bad guy in a lot of 60s westerns, particularly The Wild Bunch, I think is his most famous role. I know you mentioned Hang Him High, but he's exceptional as the bounty hunter in The Wild Bunch, a movie that we're eventually going to get to if you haven't watched it yet. He gives a great performance in that. He did a lot of work as a TV character actor as well for a long time, but he's kind of one of those faces that you had seen around but probably never knew his name. He's a that guy. Same with Gregory Eatson. I would say that he popped up on a lot of your TV programs and procedurals that you had no idea. I think notably his most famous one, and I think that the top of the line with his obituary is playing the president during one of the seasons of 24. I think actually maybe it was two seasons, if I remember right. I only watched probably the first four seasons of the show. But he was exceptional for either playing guys that were very withholding or bad guys. And so he seemed kind of like a tough suit. I think that's the through line through most of these guys that passed away, oddly enough, is playing tough guys. L.Q. Jones is a Western bad guy. Jimmy Kahn always playing a tough guy in whichever leading role he was given. Or for that matter, Tony Sirico, who was playing Polly Walnuts on The Sopranos. He played probably one of the most memorable characters on one of the most memorable prime or premium cable TV shows of all time. And I think it's a character that will live on for quite a while, well past his unfortunate passing here. Same with James Caan. I mean, yes, for my generation, he's probably Will Ferrell's dad and elf. But for several other generations, probably the one just ahead of you, dad, he is Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, a movie we just discussed, and that was celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. In fact, 
he had just gone to something that I heard somebody talk about where it was a, a 50th anniversary celebration. And he's apparently been in failing health for a while. He was in his wheelchair and he was having some problems, but he was there. He was exuberant. He was able to answer most of the questions and just to be able to have that because I had heard for a long time, and I'm not sure why I got this impression, but that he was somewhat of a cantankerous actor that was very prickly. But apparently, of course, after he's passed now, you've seen some of these tributes of how very warm, how very giving he was of his time. And maybe that's just a byproduct. We hear that a lot after people pass, but I don't get that sense from some of these people because there's some really glowing tributes to him that I think maybe my impression of him was maybe a little bit off. Obviously, Brian's song, the number one guy cry movie of all time, he can show some vulnerability and some tenderness, but definitely I, I think we'll miss all of these people in some capacity or another, but they will live on certainly in their work for quite a long time yet to come. So we celebrate them here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, best lines. I only have three. Salieri, I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. Mediocrities everywhere. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you. I absolve you all. I have Salieri talking to the Father. That was not Mozart laughing, Father. That was God. That was God laughing at me through that obscene giggle. Salieri again. On the page it looked nothing. The beginning simple, almost comic. Just a pulse. Bassoons and basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. And then suddenly, high above it, an oboe. A single note hanging there, unwavering, until a clarinet took over and sweetened it into a phrase of such delight. This was no composition by a performing monkey. This was a music I'd never heard, filled with such longing, such unfillable longing. It had me trembling. It seemed to me that I was hearing the voice of God. Uh, I love this one. Emperor Joseph, my dear uh, young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. It's quality work. And there are simply too many notes, that's all. Just cut a few and it will be perfect. What, sir? Which few did you have in mind? <laughs> oh, my final one, Salieri. All I wanted was to sing to God. He gave me that longing and then made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If he didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire? like a lust in my body, and then deny me the talent. Count Orsini, uh Rosenberg, I love this. Italian is the proper language for opera. All educated people agree on that. I have no denial of that, but that's also why I don't care for opera. <laughs> yeah, okay. Did you have any others? No, I did not. And as far as opera, I do... Not really love opera, but I do have some appreciation for it. Then let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. 
I think the the film is still highly regarded by critics and by certain elements within the uh, industry. I think it's lost a bit of luster as time has gone by, simply because of the subject. So for the industry, I went the three point five for that reason. But the public, it almost doesn't have a pulse. Uh, I think you're going to have a hard time getting most people to sit down. If you tell them, oh, well, it's a three-hour film, and there's opera in it, and classical music, and people wearing powdered wigs, they're going to look at you like, okay, is this some sort of a joke? No, I expect you to watch this. And that's the reaction I get. Uh, I will say that there are a lot of people, a lot of people, who have never seen this and will have never or will never have any intention of watching it. So I had to go with a one for the public. So I won the 4.5 overall. I definitely agree with you in a lot of ways on the industry. I still think it has some appreciation within the critic circle. And I mean, it's, it's reflected, but again, it has waned over time. And this has almost no legs for anybody beyond it. I don't know if I can name a film that's more critically acclaimed even now yet that has almost nobody from the primary cast, writing staff, musical background, directorship, anything that seems to have any major success or run of success outside of this movie. Do you know Milos Forman outside of this movie? No. Do you know Peter Schaefer outside of this movie? No. Do you really know much about F. Murray Abraham until the last maybe seven years outside of this movie? He did one film, The Last American Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he was part of a joke within the film. Okay, so he had a bit part. But, I, I mean, Tom Holtz, outside of appearing in Animal House before this, has he done anything significant after this movie? Not in film. Both Abraham and Hulse were stage actors and did a lot more stage work after this. Never really did a whole lot in Hollywood. And that makes sense because there are not a ton of plays being adapted into movies anymore. I think this was at an age where that was still somewhat common, but it's not nearly as commonplace. And so... I think I would have to go with maybe a four on this just because I do think it still holds some weight among some critic circles that elevate the film as still exceptional. And I think it does hold up as probably one of the few best picture winners of the 80s that anybody has some affinity yet for. But outside of that, it really is kind of a barren wasteland for this movie. So I'll go for a four on the industry. I'll give it a one and a half for the audience. I agree with you for the most part that other than some people that are probably in your age bracket that probably saw it the first time around, there are not a lot of people that know of or have seen this movie. And I think that will continue to dwindle as time goes on because yeah, your pitch for this movie is about as good as it's going to get. So that's a 5.5 for me for a five average between us. Impact significance. This was really big in that first year after it was released. And after that, it pretty much fell off a cliff. None of the major people went on to do anything else of notoriety. I mean, like you said, 
the primary actors went back to the stage. I'm sure Schaefer went back to playwriting and nobody did anything within movies. And this is supposed to be a judgment of movies and the movie industry. So I can't really give it credit for that. You have to bump it up initially because of the amount of Oscars it won. But outside of that and the initial acclaim from the audience, it's not like this was a celebrated movie that everybody was clamoring to try and get on VHS or uh, see on HBO for the years after it was done. So I had to go with a 4.5 for the industry and I'll go a three for the audience for a 7.5. I had from the industry 4.5 because I thought that the critics continued to rave about the film. It, it didn't just end. I know it didn't launch careers and whatever, but I think it did have some more legs than what you think it did. As far as the public, it did very well in the box office initially. And having lived through this time frame, I think it did better in uh, rentals and release into VHS and such than you think it did the first year. It was not something that everybody was like, oh, I've got to see this or else. Okay, when was Blockbuster popularized? Because I don't remember it being a major playing partner in the mid-1980s. No, but it was still there. It was, it, it was, Blockbuster kind of, it started about that time where you, everybody had their little videos, stores, okay? Where I, you know, grew up was Beloit Woodman's Grocery, which is a chain within Wisconsin, they used to have a small area near the cash register where they would have about 150 VHS tapes. And that was what a lot of gas stations, a lot of uh, grocery stores and such had. Blockbuster revolutionized that by having almost everything you could get in one location so you could pick it up. Sometimes if you wanted a movie, you'd have to go to two or three places up until then. So it was there. And that's why I challenge you a little bit on that particular notion is I don't think that you could really count availability or number of rentals being a thing in the mid-1980s quite yet because you didn't have the family videos or the blockbusters to really make a, a stand on what was popular or not. Well, but what you also had was that a lot of people saw this when it was on HBO or Cinemax, which was a lot of people's version of home rental. It gave you an opportunity to see films that you were not going to necessarily see at the theater or that were not playing very long within your area. And I think there was some level of popularity to it that lasted for about two or three years. So for that reason, I went with a four. So I have an 8.5. So that's an eight average between us. I still also would push back on the prevalence of HBO being available to the general population at that time, but... Oh, it was. It was very popular at that time. Novelty. This seems like somewhat of a unicorn film. I know it's not unique for being a stage play that's adapted to film. I mean, even now, we still have quite a few of those that we take and readapt. I mean, we just had West Side Story renominated for Best Picture. We've had several or a string of several different stage plays that have been adapted and gotten critical acclaim over the last several years. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Fences, uh, et cetera, et cetera, over the last few years. 
So it's not unique for that. But as for making a Shakespearean drama with a Greek tragedy ending out of a somewhat fantastical, less concerned with factual accuracy drama out of two composers from the 18th century and making it a fairly popular film in the mid-80s, I just don't think there are too many films that were like this at the time, and I think that's what made it exceptional, is it was good, but it also there wasn't anything else like this. And given the acting performances and how well done this was, I mean, we didn't even talk about the costume design or the set production or anything else, which are all exceptional as well in this film. I think I, I have to go among some of our elite peers as far as novelty in this particular instance, and I went with a 9.5. I'm not far off. I gave it points down because it's an adaptation of a play, and um, there is a certain Shakespearean theme to this that's pretty clear um, that I think borrowed from. I think to some extent this is a, a musical version of Othello, no, I, I wouldn't draw that conclusion. I think that's a much different situation. He's betrayed by a close, trusted advisor who he considers a friend. In this case, he doesn't really trust Salieri until the end and thinks he doesn't like him. And I think that's a much different situation, and he doesn't end up killing his wife. So it's really not a like for like. No, I know, but it's still, there's some compatibility. So I went with an 8.5. So I'm not that far off, but that's why I went down. Can I push back or challenge another one of your premises? Oh, please. Do you penalize anything that's adapted from a book? Depends. I mean, if you're if we're doing it that way, then you'd have to consistently downgrade it like a half a point for any adapted material ever. And we didn't do that with Gentleman's Agreement last week, which was adapted from a book. I don't remember you doing that for A Few Good Men, which was a stage play. So I I just would push back on that notion that it's adapted. If it's like a sequel to something or a remake, sure, that makes sense. But in this particular instance, yes, it's adapted from a stage play, but how many people actually saw something on Broadway? (laughs) Okay. You made your point, but I made my points. Well, it's fine. It'll end up being a nine between us. Classicness. This one I'm all over the place on, so I'll let you go first. We had a fairly strong female character. It's a period piece, so it's difficult. The biggest cringe factor I had is Jeffrey Jones. Okay. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because, I mean, he's a he was a good actor. I mean, I thought he did a great job in this film. I thought he did a great job in in Ferris Bueller. But knowing where he ended up and what ended up happening to him, there's a certain willy. That is not the word you use right there. Well, okay. Creepiness. There you go. That's a better word. Creepiness factor. And uh, so I had to give at least a half a point down for that. And I didn't give it any more than that because he's not like a pivotal character. But for the most part, I didn't find too much that I found difficult. So I went with an 8.5 for classicness. I agree with you. Every time he pops up, it just, 
there's a certain uneasiness about watching him on screen, knowing what he's done. And I won't provide you with the details here. If you want to know, Google it yourself. I mean, that's really what you got to do. But yeah, that that by itself would grade it a half point down for me. I know some of this may go into rewatchability as opposed to classicness, but given that we only have the director's cut now, and I think the 20 minutes that they added, other than the one scene where Salieri embarrasses her, I think that it probably worked better as the theatrical cut because there's this movie is too bloated, particularly in the middle, and it made it watching it a lot more difficult. I mean, I told you, the middle hour, I was having trouble not picking up my phone. And that's not something you want to do when you're watching a movie. Or at least I really try not to. Outside of that, even the well-known tunes of Mozart, and I was a little bit surprised on a few of them that I'd heard in some popular culture things that have been brought into stuff, particularly like the Requiem March. There were some pieces of that, or I think there was a, a one of his opera pieces I was surprised I knew something from, but how many people actually know or have even heard of any of these? I mean, if you played a couple of them for some people, somebody might recognize something somewhere, but the number of people who actually know classical music or I just think is increasingly going down as we give way to the auto-tune generation. (laughs) And like I said, I could only relate to about half of them that I recognize. So I think it's an appreciation, but that's among maybe an elite class of people. Yes. Because of the drag, because of the extra half point down from Jeffrey Jones, and I didn't I didn't find anything too outside of that disagreeable with the film. I kind of went with a neutral seven and then worked back from there to a six. Need help with the math? If you want to provide it. So you had six? Yes. So that would be 7.25? Correct. Rewatchability. This is too long. It drags in the second hour. Because of its runtime, you have to really decide that you want to watch this film. So it's not something that you're just going to, on average, put on. And because a lot of the scenes are quick cuts and there's nothing identifiable, you can't even really split it up into parts very well. But I think that F. Murray Abrahams and Tom Hulse's performances shouldn't be forgotten, should be returned to every so often. I will give this a 5.5. A film I will watch again, I give a 6. That's my standard 6. So I gave 6.5, and I'll be completely honest. Okay, I put this on the list because it's a film that I liked and I wanted to watch again. But I knew if I didn't have to force myself to watch it again for the show, I wasn't likely to watch it anytime soon. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. So sometimes it's, um, you uh, put or choose films because it pushes you to go beyond your comfort zone. So with the audience score, we had a 89% for Google users and a 95% for Rotten Tomato users, which I was very surprised by, for a 9.2 score in that category. So to recap, we have a 5 for Legacy, an 8 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, a 7.25 for Classicness, a 6 for Rewatchability, and a 9.2 for Audience Score for a 44.45 overall. And that places it on the list between 
The Dirty Dozen, and Dial M for Murder. Okay. Pretty smack dab in the middle of the list. Okay. Not too bad. All right, remaining questions for this one. What was the pyrotechnic situation in the 18th century? Well, they had fireworks and they had flash powder. Okay, but did they have, like, sparkling, smoking pyrotechnics that they could shoot off at whim in the middle of operas? I think they did. Boy, that's some production value. I just, no. That seemed like a modern twist on that, and I, it took me out of the movie a little bit. I'll be honest. Okay. Also, how is anyone to believe that F. Murray Abraham is in his 20s through pretty much half the film? He was like 45 when he did this. <laughs> I don't know any way you could believe that uh, James Stewart was in his 30s when he did Liberty Valance. I don't know. You got any? No, I don't have any. I enjoyed watching the film again. I enjoyed doing the show tonight. That's about the remaining questions I have. All right, fair enough. Final thoughts for the week. No, I'm looking forward. I... I enjoy it on the waterfront, and I enjoy the performances, so um, I'm looking forward to watching it. I'm going to really need to dig into what a lot of the industry seems to think about Marlon Brando's performance. I've never understood why it's held up as, like, the seminal acting performance of all time. Like, I just recently read something with Spike Lee where he mentioned that as being like one of his favorite acting performances ever. And I'm like, what? Like, I would never have expected that out of Spike Lee, but okay, cool. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with our final selection from the 1950s, with one of the most renowned acting performances of all time with On the Waterfront from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg, and starring Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint, Carl Malden, Rod Steiger, and Lee J. Cobb. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnydunkinstudios.com to sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.